Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Hi everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) No. Welcome to the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack, episode number 13. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and you're listening to the Spinner Rack, my attempt once a week to pick out my top five books from all the books published each and every week by DC Comics. Kicking things off for this week, I'm going to start with Wonder Twins number five, Wonder Twins is a comic book that I can honestly say I did not expect would be on the spinner rack this week when there were so many great titles to choose from, but I've got a few reasons why I think this one makes the cut, and I think you'll agree, and if you don't, I'd love to hear why. Now, on the story side, essentially, so much of what's going on with the Wonder Twins is uh, a retelling of what occurred when they first featured on Super Friends. Strangers. Teenagers. From another planet with amazing powers, who take it jobs as interns at the Justice League and try to fit in as normal high school students, something they sometimes succeed at, but not always. What's happening right now? Well, that actually gives me the opportunity to move right into one of my favorite parts of the story, and this has to do with the challenge facing Zan and Jaina and their friend Polymath, whose father Philomath has been forced to work for Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor actually grabbed Philo straight out of college when Philo could not find work that fit his uh, experience and aspirations. And even when he could find work, it was demeaning and belittling. With Lex Luthor, Philo could reach, strive, and soar. But that also meant that he was bound to Lex Luthor and whatever Lex asked him to do. This has put him into conflict with Polly, who, last issue, learned that her father is part of the League of Annoyance and a criminal. 
she didn't take that well. She's trying to find a way to not only address it with herself, but also address her father and her concerns and hopefully change his mind. Zan and Jaina are taking the more direct route by challenging the League of Annoyance to a winner-take-all bout at the zoo. There are a few developments that include the usage of Kryptonian technology by Sylvia and the confrontation between Polly and her father Philo. At the end of it all, Sylvia's use of this technology in confrontation with Philo leads to what appears to be his death, but may have been something more in tune with Kryptonian technology. Polymath, who is frustrated by what has happened to her father and her family, believes that maybe all the awards she has won are the wrong way to go, and that an offer from the League of Annoyance and the members she met and has had a conversation with, named the Scrambler, who actually wants to work with her father, might be her ticket to finding a way out of the trap that it seems like Lex Luthor has designed too perfectly for her and her father to escape. I absolutely loved the art in this issue. I really felt that the colors really demonstrated the uh, different atmospheres that the scenes were taking place in, and I'm referring to this sort of faux fluorescent light illumination on Jaina and the League of Annoyance when they're fighting at the zoo, in contrast with the dark and heavy contrast, the heavy shading and tones that surround the conversation between Polymath and her father Philo when they're talking about the choices that he has to make instead of the choices that she wants him to make. When it comes to my least favorite parts of the story, the biggest thing I'm struggling with right now are the moments when Zan and Jaina appear to go from complete idiots to thinking, rational, caring people. They're almost like the village idiot or the fool from a Shakespearean play. And while this is something that can provide a lot of great insight and be a joy for the audience and the reader, it can also be used incorrectly. And right now, I'm teetering on the edge of wanting Zan and Jaina to say stupid because, or clueless or unaware because they don't actually understand things as well until after they've sort of bumbled their way through. And yet a part of me is also waiting for them to kind of figure things out the way so many teenagers are able to adapt so quickly. On the art side, I really didn't have any area that I could point out as being a least favorite. I enjoy the lighthearted tones, the lighthearted take. I feel that it's expressed well in the lines and the colors. And I also feel that in a book like this, an advantage of the art is the way that the light-hearted take, for the most part, in presenting these characters, allows the seriousness of the story to actually come through with a, a greater presence than I would have originally thought possible. Overall, I thought this was a great book, and one I'm going to encourage you to pick up if it happens to make your top five list, or if you're looking for recommendations for your top five list. As always, I like to score these books on a scale of one to five, and for Wonder Twins number five, I am proud to give a 4.5 out of five. If you agree or disagree, 
I'd love to hear about it, including what your score was, or if this book even made your top five. Listen to the end of the episode, when I'll give you all the ways that you can reach out and let us know what you're thinking, what you're reading, and what your score is. For my second book on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 13, I went ahead and chose The Batman Who Laughs, issue number 6. Now, issue number 6 is actually the penultimate of this seven-issue miniseries that features The Batman Who Laughs from the Dark Multiverse and the way he has been trying to change a modern present-day Batman into the very darkness that Batman is always fighting to never become. There's a lot of players in this story, Jim Gordon and his son, as well as another version of Batman who uses a gun known as the Grim Knight, and a really interesting series of events which has been directed, I guess would be, or conducted, perhaps. One of those might be the best words to describe how the Batman who laughs has been bringing Bruce Wayne's from other dimensions through and then leaving their dead bodies to be found. These Bruce Waynes appear to be no longer involved with the Batman, either after their back was broken by Bane or due to some other uh, traumatic or powerful change in their lives. But they're all being used by the Batman who laughs to address the question of whether or not Batman can actually be happy. And this is one of my favorite story points in this issue, because it's something I know that other writers have tried to address. I've watched Tom King and others try to challenge Batman and see whether or not what he does makes him happy, and also challenge whether or not someone like Batman can ever actually be happy. Is it possible, or would happiness defeat the purpose of the Batman, who has to always be in a place of sadness and loneliness in order to have that inner drive that allows them to take on the daily, nightly task of fighting crime. On the art side, boy, this is really a phenomenal issue. It's really hard to, to you know, point to just one thing, but there are so many great uses of color, lighting, shading, close-ups. Uh, every time there's a close-up of the Batman who laughs, smile, and the way the teeth just almost seem to be bleeding, or the way blood just seems to come off him, is uh, accentuated by some of the panels when Batman and Batman Who Laughs uh, have a final confrontation. And this huge swaths of reds just seem to cover everything and create this tonal shift that's really impressive. It, it gives the sense that the Batman Who Laughs has already invaded this area. And in the process, it also illustrates how the Batman Who Laughs is working towards a final goal, which is to get the serum he's injected Batman with to completely take over Batman and fully transform him into another version of the Batman Who Laughs. Really great art, really great storytelling, and I struggled to find any weak points in this one as well. However, I did feel that there is a challenge in the relationship between Jim Gordon and his son, who has been portrayed in not only this title, but in uh, Batgirl and other titles as a dangerous, violent criminal with tendencies that have been monitored and regulated. But in order to help Jim and Batman, those are no longer something that they need to rely on. They need to rely on his ability as a serial killer and his understanding of the psychosis that goes with it. 
In many ways, this has been a process of breaking down Batman and changing him to meet the will and needs of the Batman who laughs. And in this storytelling, it feels like in many ways we're just seeing the destruction and disintegration of Batman. At the end of this issue, it appears as though the Batman who laughs might have won, but I'd like to hear what you think about that interpretation and whether or not what we see is what's actually happening or if in the final issue this breakdown of the Batman can finally be brought to a stop and once it does will there be anything left of the Batman to fight back against the Batman who laughs I didn't see any issues with any of the art that I wanted to point out there were very few least favorite moments that I could even attempt to identify even now as I flip back through the pages so much of it is so tight so clean and features all of those things that I really enjoyed on the positive sides of the storytelling if there is one element that I do find a little distracting it's seeing Batman during this process of change and the way parts of him feel twisted and make him look almost like Two-Face and less like a version of the Batman who laughs. And because of that, I struggle with just exactly how serious to take this screwed up looking version of the Batman. That aside, I'm more than happy and more than proud to talk about this book and all of the great things that go with it and it's a reason why this one will also receive on that scale of one to five a score of 4.5 now again that's just my score what i really want to hear is what your score is when you share it with me listen to the end of this episode for all the ways that we can help you do that let's keep moving on through to book number three and that third book this time around is going to be Justice League Odyssey number 10. When it comes to Justice League Odyssey, there's really so much going on that the best way to catch you up is to say that now that the source wall is broken, a rogue team of members of the Justice League, including Starfire, Cyborg, Azrael, and Jessica Cruz, have gone off to the Ghost Sector on a mission to see if they can find a way to make things right. Part of their process has been trying to uncover pieces of a project that was created by Darkseid, who they have been working with because he claims he is the only one with the power and the preparation to bring about a solution to all of the conflict that has been caused ever since the source wall was broken. Ever since they've been working with him though, members of the Justice League, this Odyssey team, have been affected. And it goes into one of my favorite parts of the storytelling, which is how both Starfire and Azrael have become much more powerful and dedicated to this mission of working with Darkseid, and how Cyborg and Jessica Cruz know that at some point they might have to turn on their teammates and that they're both working with each other to see how much longer they can trust these teammates. When it all comes to a head though is when one of my favorite story moments in this issue is addressed because Starfire and Azrael confront Cyborg and Jessica to let them know that not only are they aware 
of their concerns, but they also know that there is a growing lack of trust and a concern that when the time comes, the team will need to betray Darkseid, and they're not sure if they can count on Starfire and Azrael to help them out. There are a few other elements in this story which are quite solid, and they include the uh, continued collection of the relics and the recognition that each place that the team goes to to collect these relics is guarded by monsters, creations of Brainiac trying to stop them, and that these monsters and creatures grow stronger and more prepared each time they, the Justice League Odyssey team visits a new one to collect a new relic. The challenge is getting harder, and as it is, the team is barely achieving their goals, facing the challenges that are current. If they get much worse, how much more success are they likely to have, or will a lack of success require them to do something different, something drastic, or something that could change the very nature of their team and their mission? I really love how so much of the art in this story is so very dark and heavy. So many of the worlds oppressed and troubled. And it's a, a weight, this shadow, that seems to settle on the team and also amplify these conflicts that they're facing, not only when it comes to their mission, but their relationships with each other as a team and how they are strained each time these two-man groups comprised of essentially one League member that they trust and one that they don't accomplish their tasks, collect their relics, and get closer to their great challenge while also at the same time feeling the strain on their relationships and their team. This is a great story element that's only heightened and amplified by the art in this issue, and it's one of the elements that I think really bring out the best in these characters and the storytelling. On the story side, right now, because there are so many elements in play, it's really difficult to point to any difficulties or dislikes that I'm currently witnessing, especially in this issue or in the storyline as a whole. One of the greatest challenges of a voyage story is about the new environment and how it changes what original expectations might be and changes the course of the story and the direction of the characters. And in many ways, it's less about the beginning and the end than it is about the strain of the journey that goes from the beginning to the end and builds to the anticipation and the strain and challenge as you get closer to your goal. I think this is done very well, but it can be a challenge week after week, issue after issue, to watch the team keep working towards their goal while at the same time continue to wait to see whether or not their teammates or dark side will bring it all unraveling. I think the art does a great job of supporting this I struggled to find any issues, although it could be difficult to constantly see 
these characters and their story captured in either these dark heavy shadows or these muted green and glaring purple lights that are part of the environment that surrounds them and it makes up the planets that they visit or the ship that they are traveling in and it's almost a sense of claustrophobia which works very well on the positive side but if it isn't perceived by the reader might be a bit of a distraction with all of that to be considered it's still no hesitation on my part to look at the scale of one to five and put this book as a solid four out of five i thought about the 4.5 but because so much of this issue is building on the last and because there hasn't been any great development to sort of shake up this long plotting process it's harder to go beyond the four because i feel like right now so many of these elements are continuing the strengths that i've seen in the issues that precede them again my score is a solid four out of five your score is something i can't wait to hear and i'm looking forward to you sharing with us and my fourth book is going to be the flash number 72 This current storyline of The Flash is actually part three of this great year one tale that's being told right now by Mr. Williamson. And I really like the year one concept because of what I've seen it do with The Flash in the past. This version of a year one look back to the earliest days of Barry Allen and his time as The Flash features the Flash returning from a glimpse to the future after he attempted an ill-advised journey into the future. And like anyone who has had a chance to see a potential dangerous outcome that could be waiting, is now driven to find a way to keep that from ever happening. And while Barry's intentions are good, He hasn't developed any mastery of his powers. We are still witnessing him in the early days after his lightning accident and after he gained those powers. And this is a view and a a glimpse into some of the details that might not have come out previously in the stories about his origin and a chance to look at how those elements inform more about the character that we think we already know and enjoy. Barry does everything he can to slow down the current master criminal, the turtle, because of all the danger that he saw the turtle causing to the future and the way a future version of Barry looked like he had been fighting a never-ending war against the turtle, one that was caused by an early underestimation of this actually very dangerous super criminal. The nice thing is that through this process of Barry trying to undo all of the negatives that he saw in the future, he's begun to take on some of the risks that he needs to take on, and he's also begun to address the civilian side of his life, including the part of him that is a CSI, someone who breaks down evidence and uses it to solve crimes. And because he's had this bit of a backlog, digging back into his work, has allowed him to make the best strides and efforts towards bringing about 
a change to that eventual future or possible future that he had a glimpse at and a change to his relationship with Iris. One of my favorite story elements is not only how he goes about attempting to do this, but seeing Barry back in his natural environment, working a case, working a crime scene, and working on being a better man for the woman that he loves, Iris. I think the art does a great job of showing a kind of young, fresh, slightly messy Barry Allen, and how this creates a bright, fresh, and slightly messy take on his relationship with Iris. On the negative side, I've really struggled to find any issues with not only the story or the art in the first two, and now this third chapter of year one of The Flash. In many ways, I feel that it's a challenge because this retelling is designed to put a new twist or spin on what we think is to be known about this current version of Barry Allen, The Flash, or his relationship with Iris. And keeping that in mind allows me to look past any inconsistencies or glaring differences with what I might have already thought I knew about the character, and instead to focus on how this character and this version is allowing me to better understand the Barry Allen I'll be witnessing in the stories that come from it. With all that said, I'm happy to say that this was such a clean, bright, strong chapter in a year one saga that I'm more than proud to give this book a 5 out of 5 on my score of 1 to 5 for the DC Comics new spinner rack. If you think I'm right, I'd love to hear it. And you think I might have been a little bit wrong? I'd love to hear that too. But more than anything, I'd love to hear your score and then see where, why, and how we differ on our scores and maybe have a great conversation in the process. Again, listen to the very end where I'll tell you how we can make all that happen. But let's go ahead and get that last book out of the way so we can wrap up this edition of The Spinner Rack. And for book number five, it really is my pleasure to move right into Batman and the Outsiders number two. Now, Batman and the Outsiders number one actually create a bit of controversy with the role of Batman and his relationship to Black Lightning as the leader of the Outsiders team. There was some pushback from one of the writers of the Black Lightning character who felt that this was a disservice to all of the accomplishments the character has already achieved on his own and that this sort of subjugation or allegiance to Batman limits the character and makes him a subordinate. I felt that in many ways the opening of this issue attempted to address those concerns and to point to the need by Batman for someone like Black Lightning to be the leader of the team because it's something that Batman can't do. Essentially, Batman has put together this team for his own reasons and in issue number two, there is an attempt to illustrate what those reasons might be. Batman's argument is that through his time and practice, he has created a symbol of fear through the Batman and that is not something that the world needs right now. It's something that people can trust, and it's something that they can expect. What 
Batman needs for this team of the Outsiders is something that's completely opposite. As he tells Jeff, Black Lightning, he's hope. He's a symbol of light, of promise, of opportunity, of how someone can do more, become better, and through it all, not become the dark version of themselves that Bruce Wayne has forced himself to become. Now, while this is a great story element, one of the other elements that I enjoy so well is the discussion that Batman and Jeff, Bruce Wayne and Jeff, are having about someone named Caliber who's watching a young woman named Sophia. Caliber is a former mercenary from Markovia who had his life changed by Batman and is trying to do more and be better. But that doesn't mean that he's stable, and this is something Batman feels is a concern. While he feels that Caliber can do his best to follow the objective, he needs Black Lightning and the Outsiders to provide uh, support and also to take the pressure off of Caliber so that this challenge isn't placed not only solely on him, but that by placing it solely on him, he doesn't do something dangerous that could lead to harm to either Sophia or any of the other members of the team. I love that this story features not only the introductory story element, the idea of Batman needing a symbol of hope like Jeff in order to accomplish his goal, which is the team of the Outsiders, but also the conversation between Caliber and Sophia about how she wants to be a doctor and never wanted these powers, and yet now here she is forced to deal with them. And because of that, she is now in the crosshairs of a killer like Ishmael and that this is something that she doesn't want and at a moment of weakness even makes an attempt to take her own life before the danger the assassin her attacker named Ishmael comes for. Caliber is very impressive in his ability to use the weapons that he's brought with him to try and keep Ishmael at bay and send Sophia on a run. But Sophia doesn't actually listen. And in a crucial moment, after she's run away, she charges back in, deploys her powers, and her strength saves the life of Caliber. While it puts her at risk, Black Lightning and the Outsiders have arrived, and they begin to take on the challenge of this assassin named Ishmael. I love the art in this story. So much of what's happening takes place at night in Joshua Tree, California, under a black sky, and the lighting of the weapons and the powers cast under the silhouette of the moon, a full moon just glowing in the bright sky, and all of the sort of elements that come with the shading and the brilliance of the art in this not only scene but this story is really quite lovely and it makes some of the more powerful moments seem to ring so much more loudly as they are illuminated against this dark shadowed night when it comes to the negative sides i maybe i'm just liking these books too much but for a negative story component really so many great elements were introduced here that it's easy to challenge them and just as easy to then critically acknowledge their brilliance. 
caliber is unstable, and it's something that Jeff doesn't understand Bruce Wayne willing to take the risk on. And yet Bruce believes that he, in his own way, can accomplish some of the things that Jeff has been able to do as Black Lightning. And one of his attempts is through a character like Caliber. Caliber proves his mettle, but clearly is someone who might be a conflict in the future and someone that will need to be dealt with. On the art side, because I loved so much of what was going on in the nighttime and with this series of fighting sequences and the way that the colors and the brightness shone through, because so much of it was done in a way that I enjoyed, I didn't have any negative issues or least favorite moments in the art, which is something I'm more than happy to share and more than happy to talk about should you find that you have a disagreement or a discretion. This was an amazing book, something that really made me enjoy picking up this stack of books this week and making Batman the Outsiders number two my fifth and final pick for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I gave this book a five out of five. I thought it did everything I wanted, and I still believe that. I'd love to hear your score. And if it's something you're ready to share with me and the rest of the team or the social media world at large, let's go ahead and talk about how you can do that. So keep in mind that DC Comics News and the DC Comics News Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. There's so many more. And if you have one you'd like to share with us that's your favorite, please let us know. And once you have found us on your favorite podcast platform, subscribe, then rate and review. If you think we're less than five stars, I'd love to hear why. But more than anything, I'm going to enjoy the fact that we get to hear your review and all the things it tells us about our podcast. You can also find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. And we'd love for you to use any of those platforms to share your score with us, with me, about your books, scores, thoughts, feelings, and reviews regarding this and all the books from this week and every week. And maybe we can have a great conversation about it all right here on the Spinner Rack. Remember, for your scores, tag us at DC Comics News. That's at DCC. O-M-I-C-S-N-E-W-S. And as we like to say at the end of this and every episode, always read more comics. This has been DC Comics News, Spinner Rack, episode number 13. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Join me next week and every week as we pick the top five from DC Comics News just for you. See you next time.